Welcome to Fully Covered, sponsored by Grant Thornton, leading providers in audit, tax and advisory services. So hi, everybody. My name is Emma Leonard. I've worked in the insurance sector for almost 20 years now, having previously worked in claims, regulation and currently in the risk management sphere. I'm delighted that my guest today on Fully Covered is Tom Donlan. Tom is an actuary and has enjoyed working in general insurance for many years. His early years were spent as an actuarial consultant in London and Sydney before he returned to Ireland in 2004. Over the years, Tom has been a consultant with ENY and Deloitte and more recently led the general insurance actuarial consulting practice for Willis Towers Watson here in Ireland. Tom has also worked in industry and served on the boards of two major insurance companies, Whilst an actuary at the core, he has also enjoyed other more general roles, including as Chief Risk Officer. Tom is a graduate of mathematics from Trinity College Dublin and is a proud fellow of the Society of Actuaries in Ireland, where he is an active member, having served on council and various committees for many years. More recently, Tom founded Actuary Augmented Limited to help companies manage succession. Even the largest companies find it difficult to replace senior staff and it is always challenging and expensive to hire senior actuaries into a business. With this in mind, Tom now helps companies to fill senior vacancies internally by helping actuaries to transition into senior roles that might be a big step up. This ensures a career path for loyal staff, improves staff retention and avoids the risk of hiring externally in a thin market. Tom, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. When we first met to discuss you coming onto the podcast, your enthusiasm, it really was infectious. So I'm delighted you're here today. It's very clear that you're very passionate about the industry. And as the bio sets out, uh, you've had a very stellar career. So it's tricky really to know where to start. But let's kick off with your role as an actuary. So many of the listeners today would know what an actuary, what the role of an actuary is. But for those who don't, could you please just set out what the role entails? And could you clarify maybe the difference between a pricing, reserving actuary and also the HOAF? Well, Emma, I will do my best. Uh, Thank you very much for the introduction. I'm really happy to be involved with your podcast. I've really enjoyed your earlier podcasts. And you're quite right. I do love talking about insurance and listening about insurance. So it's, a, it's really great that there's a podcast to, uh, to service that. So thank you very much. Very pleased to be here. Yeah, actuaries, it's um, quite difficult to tie down what an actuary is and, and the roles of actuaries, but I'll have a go. <laughs> I mean, insurance is the classic place that actuaries work in, but it's not just insurance. We have actuaries now working in, in other industries as well, banking, funds, even aircraft leasing, all sorts. But still, insurance and pensions, I guess, are the, are the classic areas. But even within insurance companies, you have actuaries working in multiple and varied roles, right from the, the technical, classical kind of reserving and pricing and capital modeling areas, but then also more general um, management areas and um, indeed branching out into operational areas that have, on the face of it, quite little to do with actuarial work. So really hard to kind of pin it down. But I guess, for me at least, the core discipline or the core activity that actuaries, at least in non-life insurance, have have done or or do really is reserving and uh, things related to reserving. And that's probably the one area where there is actually a regulatory footing or or guidance that that guides actuaries is to do with reserving not only but mainly to do with reserving 
And I think to get a definition of that, the best place to look is probably good old Solvency II Directive. Article 48 in there actually sets out what the role of the actuarial function is. And in that definition, it, uh, you know, reserving is, is, is a critical part, but there are other bits as well. And I might sort of touch on those, but really Solvency II doesn't say much about the other activities that actuaries get up to. It's, it's much more focused on that reserving uh, role. So within reserving and these other kind of roles, it's, it's probably more akin to the appointed actuary role that life companies had years ago. Because I remember when Solvency II came in, which uh, really brought a broadening of the activities for the, for the uh, actuarial function for non-life people. And there was a little bit of concern where it was interesting that the life actuaries were going, well, we've been doing this for, for ages. But what that introduced, that Article 48, what it introduced was a very specific role for reserving for actuaries, but also interesting roles in underwriting, reinsurance, and risk management but of a slightly different nature to the reserving activity. So, you know, just, just on, on underwriting, for example, the actuary is required to, to, if you like, give an opinion on underwriting in broad kind of terms, which is a real challenge because actuaries are not underwriters. It certainly brings some disciplines to the table in terms of, you know, measuring historical performance and, and having a, a forward-looking view and so on, but they're not underwriters. So that's created quite a challenge for actuaries to be able to provide an opinion on underwriting, not least because underwriting is just so broad. You know, it, it brings into, into play things like conduct risk and, you know, treating policyholders fairly, you know, not really concepts that your typical actuary is used to handling. But nevertheless, under the, um, the central bank's interpretation of Article 48, which is embodied in the domestic actuarial regime and that guidance, the actuary is required to provide an opinion to the board. And that is, that is what we must do as head of actuarial function. I think boards do find it helpful, to be fair, to have somebody give a perspective on underwriting. That is helpful. But for the actuary, I think the, the critical challenge is just making sure that the reliances and limitations of that opinion are quite clear so that everybody understands that this is a view that's provided from an individual with certain experience but is, you know, is, is not an underwriter. Similar consideration, I think, for um, the reinsurance opinion, which is about giving a view on the adequacy of the reinsurance in place. And to be fair, Whilst actuaries are not reinsurance professionals, they do have a perspective. It is an important part of the work. When we're calculating technical provisions, we have to calculate gross and net. So we do have a perspective on that. But once again, actuaries are required to provide that opinion. I think, again, boards do appreciate having a perspective there as well. But the critical challenge, again, for actuaries is those reliances and limitations that um, you know the, the, the opinion is given in context. The other aspect to do with risk management is, I personally think, is, is tougher. And that's under Article 48, the requirement is, is to kind of to assist, you know, to, to, to play a, a supporting role to the risk management function, which is kind of understandable. But in the domestic actuarial regime, it goes a little bit more detailed and talks about an opinion on the ORSA process, I think is the, the precise wording, which is potentially massively broad. 
as chief risk officers will tell you, you know, they're responsible for the oversight of all risks in the business. So you're taking in all risk types and encompassing the entire risk profile of the business. So you're you're very broad in terms of um, scope. So that's a challenge for actuaries to, to provide an opinion on that. I think more so than the other two areas. I think whilst actuaries are, are very well placed to provide an opinion on the quantitative aspects, so the projections and the scenario modeling and the, the calculation of the SCR, the solvency capital requirement, and components like that, where they're probably less well equipped is in the broader aspects of, of the risk profile. So for the operational risk types, which are quite different, I would suggest, you know, in terms of management, you know, the management of operational risks is a bit different to underwriting risk and market type risks. So there's quite a challenge there, I think, for the head of actuarial function to, to be, if you like, a jack of all trades and to provide hopefully intelligent opinions on all of these areas. But those are kind of the, the, the three areas other than technical provisions. And it's in the technical provisions space that I think actuaries are very much on solid ground. You know, there's a very long history of actuarial involvement in the calculation of reserves or technical provisions under Solvency two, even in non-life insurance. I mean, it goes back even farther in life insurance, but even in non-life insurance, actuaries have been involved in that for, for decades. So they're on, on steadier ground there. And that's probably the core, I would say, discipline of actuaries. Because even if, if actuaries get involved in pricing, which they, which they absolutely do, a lot of that is kind of reserving as well because you, you're always looking into the future you're always modeling the future by if you like looking into the rear view mirror and trying to figure out what's happening in, in the future so I you know I would say reserving is probably that core discipline uh, for actuaries regardless of where they end up yeah no, it definitely feels like the role has evolved significantly over the last few years for example the, or- the ORSA opinion is is one area ORSAs have evolved a lot over the last probably five to ten years and you mentioned there the board's maybe reliance on those opinions. Just from the board perspective, are boards equipped to challenge that output from the actuarial function? Because as you say, you know, there's a specialist skill set there that the actuary is bringing. And sometimes, you know, I've, I've seen it myself in the past. Sometimes, the you know, the actuarial reports can be quite long and detailed and a lot of quantitative information in there. Is, is that an issue that companies are dealing with well? Or do you think that boards, you know, there's sufficient knowledge on boards to be able to challenge it adequately? Well, that's a tough question. Um I think just from from the very outset, as somebody who who regularly presents to boards on technical matters such as reserving, I've certainly been challenged, you know, and 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 have had good, deep challenge. So you know there is definitely competency on board to do so. However, I do have a certain sympathy for board members when it comes to actuarial reporting, because they are long. Um, you know, the ARTP or the actuarial report on technical provisions is, it's an annual report, but it is long. I mean, you know, the, the, the core of, of, of that will run to at least 60 to 80 pages, sometimes more. And that's even forgetting about appendices. So that's a, you know, there's, there is a, a significant report there. So I am, I'm sort of sympathetic to, to directors. Just to explain why 
that report is is so long. And one of the reasons is to do with professional guidance. So as actuaries and as professionals, we are subject to guidance issued by, in our case, the Society of Actuaries in Ireland. And some of that guidance relates to reporting. So typically, the report that's produced is actually addressing very specific requirements, though it may not be obvious that that is the case. You know, we must talk about data and data quality, must talk about methodology, must talk about uncertainty, reliances, limitations, all that good stuff. So there's actually a a, quite a well-defined number of sections that must be addressed. So we are kind of hamstrung right there, sort of to begin with. But that said, there's nothing to stop an actuary from summarizing that information. And, you know, I, I do think that the the best actuaries have a skill at taking that information and presenting it in a way that's more accessible to all directors, not just the ones that have competency in, in the area or in, in, in uh, allied areas. And that's a very important part of the role, I think you know, being able to focus on the key judgments, the most material matters, not getting tangled up in, frankly, the the minutiae of the modeling detail that, you know, it's important that it's right, but probably not a matter that's hugely material in isolation and probably not a matter that deserves priority above some really important matters that, that really move the dial when it comes to reserving. So I think there is a there is an onus on actuaries to communicate that information in an effective manner. I can remember when actuarial education was broadened out to include communication. You know, that was probably 20 years ago, maybe something like that. Before then, it was just it just wasn't there. So there is a consciousness of, of you know, the importance of, of summarizing that information to make it accessible. I think probably in the last number of years, what I have seen is um, changes to board training. Uh, I think it's you know well established now and essential that boards you know should have regular training on all matters that are of relevance to the board. And actuarial is probably a great example of that, just because it you know it does have some technicalities in it, and it does assist a board to have an understanding of the kind of models that are typically used, if only to understand when they break down and when they don't work. And that is, you know, that is something that happens, unfortunately, a lot in the sense that those models typically just look at the past and project it into the future. And unfortunately, often the future is not the same as the past. And we're in this dynamic uh, situation where things are changing. So those, those models often just don't work. So training is important, and I think we've seen a lot of that being introduced uh, in recent times. Probably, you know, just if I think about the best maybe challenges that I have had uh, from boards, it tends to be around the, the key judgments, you know, why that judgment, you know, whether it's a judgment on future inflation or, or whatever it is, why, which puts a great discipline on an actuary just to be able to verbalize why you know, you know just picking the number out of an air out of the air there may be no solid reason why it's that number but you know one should be able to articulate broadly why I'm going for that particular number and why you think it's a it's a reasonable number but then moving on from that this concept of okay so that's the that's the selection if you like now what if it's wrong 
you know, what what if you've got it wrong by a factor of two, then what? So that that introduces the uh, the discipline of sort of sensitivity analysis and quantifying what is the impact of a, of a divergence from that. And that can really promote a great discussion at board because that really focuses the mind on what is the materiality of this and what is the reasonable range within which we, uh, you know, we should be picking something as, a, as an entity. Probably the other big um, area that I think helps boards to challenge the likes of, of, of me and other actuaries is the actual versus expected analysis. So again, this is part of, of, of we must have this in our reports and we are required to do so by our professional guidance, this, uh, this so-called actual versus expected analysis, which quite simply uh, says, well, what happened? What did you expect was going to happen? And uh, are they different? And if they're different, what does that tell us? Does that tell us the model was wrong? Does it tell us we just hit some random variation? It's just just unlucky. Uh, do we have to recalibrate the model? So that actual versus expected analysis is quite powerful in terms of equipping boards, I think, to challenge any discipline, frankly, any discipline that's using a model. That concept of, well, what's happened and how does that compare to what we expected? So... Those are amongst the kind of, you know, the best challenges I've had. Uh, but I do regularly have very uh, detailed discussions with boards. And, you know, I'm quite impressed with the with the standard of boards, frankly, of insurance companies um, and, and, and the amount of challenge they give. That's good to hear. And I'd imagine, you know, boards have developed a lot over the last number of years as that role has developed as well. So, you know, if, if, there, are, if there is a skill gap there... You know, you'd hope that that companies have identified it and and can plug it. You mentioned there, you know, boards asking why. And there probably are a lot of reasons to ask why, you know, more so now than, you know, five years ago. There's a lot of uncertainty out there. And that does, you know, raise a lot of challenges for the actuarial function. So could we talk a little bit about those challenges, particularly at the moment when there is so much uncertainty? Yeah, look, I, I think it's like Groundhog Day. A- every year, I seem to say the same thing, which is this is, we're now more uncertain than we've ever been before. <laughs> I mean, every year, from the beginning of my career, I can remember saying to myself, oh, once this, um, you know, once this, uh, this particular thing we're dealing with is out of the way, you know, we'll get back to normal. But I think since then, things have just got more and more uncertain every year. And I don't know, maybe it's maybe that's, you know, like entropy, you know, maybe that that is the way of things. They just get more and more complicated all the time. But I actually think that 2022 year <laughs> was the most uncertain. I'll bring you on next year, uh, Tom, <laughs> and we'll see. Are you saying the same for 23? <laughs> yeah. So 2022 year end, I mean, we had we just had uncertainty on top of uncertainty. And the headline ones really were um, COVID. So we had our first lockdowns in March 2020, and they kept going, you know, into 21. So from an actuarial modeling perspective, that's disastrous because now the 20 year and the 21 year are odd. You know, they're suffering from lots of distortions. There's exposure distortions. So, the, you know, people driving much less, footfall much less, uh, working habits changed, you, you know, everybody looked out their window and saw the world is a bit different. So that had a massive impact on um, just the occurrence of claims. But then we had huge distortion as well in like the reporting delay and just the pace at which claims have developed 
whether it's access to medical, you know, GPs, courts closing down or, you know, the, the court being reduced, or even just the operations within insurance companies because everybody's working from home. So you have these multiple dynamics that are changing the pace at which claims are developing, which for actuarial reserving models is disastrous because they're, they're kind of calibrated on those delays continuing into the future. So those two years, we've come through those two years um, really kind of having to almost put the models aside. Um, they're almost useless, almost useless, and having to look at other methods, which was challenging in its own right. So that's back in 21 and, and 20. Um, but even into 22, Normally, when you're reserving for a year like, you know, the most recent year, you're kind of your best indicator or your, your best estimator of that year. So you have very little claims data. So you kind of have to look look back a little bit. Is the is the, the most recent years? And, and they're, they're different because by 22 now we've, we've started to emerge and the dynamics are changing again. So we have this very immature year and these two recent years that are completely different. So now we have three years, which, by the way, are the are the years where all of our IBNR is sitting. So our IBNR, the incurred but not reported, the, the unseen bit of the reserves, if you like, the most uncertain bit. So we really are kind of shooting in the dark uh, in terms of those three years. So we are emerging from that a little bit, but there's still a massive amount of uncertainty in relation to you know how those years are going to run off. And, you know, reserving actuaries, when dealing with uncertainty, have got to be prudent. You know, we, 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 we have to hold reserves that are a best estimate, a so-called best estimate. But at the same time, we have to be prudent. So the way I like to think about it is we're dealing with a quite a wide range, a range of best estimates. But we've got to pick something that's at the prudent end of that range of, of best estimates. So that's COVID. And then... If that wasn't enough, we had a major evolution of the claims environment, which is the introduction of the of the PIGs or the um, the personal injury guidelines, which is introduced in April twenty one. So that that on the face of it, overnight, can have a significant impact on the cost of injury claims, which in Ireland is massive because that's going to impact motor, that's going to impact EL, PL, anything that can generate a liability claim is going to be impacted by PIGs. So we have this coming in in uh, in April 21. So it's affecting now not just the 21 year, but also earlier years where we have, um, you know, later reporting and so on. So it's, it's applying across the years and into the future as well. So on the face of it, well, that's not too bad. Let's just adjust for that. But the question then arises, well, what impact is PIGs going to have? And that's actually quite a difficult question to answer. We can measure so the, the PIGs, people will, most people will know, repay, replaces the, the book of quantum. So it's a relatively easy exercise just to see, well, what's the difference? And that's going to be your, your impact. But it's not quite that simple. And I think as time goes by, we're seeing that it's not that simple and that there are other factors that come into play when it comes to trying to quantify just what impact those PIGs are going to have. So we're starting to get a picture in terms of severity impact in the context of the injuries board. So there's data there and we can kind of see what's happening relatively clearly. And it's kind of what we expected. So that's great. Unfortunately, the injuries board is just a part of it. Actually, 
a disappointingly small proportion of claims get settled in that manner. It should be way more and hopefully will be more into the future. But right now, it's actually not a huge volume. For a start, it's the smaller claims. Uh, and by, by its very definition, it's the claims that are not disputed. So it's probably always going to be just a fraction. The direct settlements by companies is a big part of it. And we have visibility of that, but only at the company level. But the really big part of it is the litigated claims. And to see what impact we're going to have in terms of the severity on those litigated claims, we need to observe judgments from the courts. And that's happening, but it's quite slow. You know, we, we, and that, that is the nature of the courts, that judgments aren't that frequent and they, they do take time. So we're continuing to observe how the courts are interpreting those PIGs before we'll really know what impact it will have. So that's on severity. And there's a couple of other dimensions as well. There's a potential frequency effect. And, you know, there is some evidence that the frequency of injury claims is reducing. And it seems to be potentially quite a strong effect. I'm not sure why that is. Perhaps it's because some claims are just not economic anymore to run. I don't know. I, I don't know why. But there is potentially a frequency and a favorable and potentially quite a materially favorable frequency effect of the PIGs. But that remains to be seen. That remains to be seen. We can certainly see it in injuries board data, but we need to see how that pans out. But that could be an impact over and above what was intended, if you like, from the, the PIGs themselves. And then the other dimension to this is that, unfortunately, we're still not on really solid ground when it comes to the, the PIGs themselves in the sense that we have a Supreme Court judgment that we're awaiting in relation to the Delaney case. That should be imminent. I don't know when, when, we'll, when we're going to hear that. But, you know, hopefully um, that case will, will be dismissed. That, has, that was dismissed in the, in, the, in the lower courts. So we'll see how that comes out. When I say hopefully, I hope that it is in the sense that the PIGs will be able to do what they were, you know, it was hoped that they would do. If it's not dismissed, then hopefully whatever the problem is can be fixed so we can end up with uh, the same intent, which is to reduce the, the cost of, of claims. So we have to wait for that to fully run its course. So I'm, you know, I'm sure in due course that the PIGs will have a very favorable effect for policyholders, which is, which is a great thing. But it may take just time to feed through. You know, I think back to the Civil Liability and Courts Act of 2004, which introduced the Book of Quantum, introduced the Injuries Board and so on. That really took years to make its way right the way through for the, for the full benefit to be felt. And I, I do wonder if, if it will take a similar time for the, for the PIGs to work through. But coming back to reserving, that's all very well, but it's a nightmare for reserving because now... Again, we're trying to use our historical data to model the future, but the future looks very, very different. So we had that on top of COVID. Um, and then we had a third thing. Uh, so during the course of 2022, roughly, uh, we started to see inflation emerge at quite, quite a, 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 a fast pace. Um, you know, we can we can see it in price data and price indices. You know, it's quite clear um, if we look at uh, core inflation indices, it's qu it's still going up. So in the emergence of inflation is, again, a nightmare for reserving. And it's it's dynamite, actually, for reserving because you won't necessarily feel the full effect of inflation for many years, potentially, because, as you know, 
some of these claims take years. So you can pick up multiple years' worth of inflation, whereas you have to reserve now for a claim that might be paid in, in multiple years' time. So that that's that was a, a third kind of uncertainty that, uh, you know, was introduced. And it's material. I read with interest the latest Motor NCID, the claims database, which, by the way, I, I think is a fantastic resource. And it, it, it's tremendously useful now as an industry that we have that data now. And, you know, fair play to all stakeholders who made that happen. But if we look at the NCID with inflation in mind, it's really interesting just, just to look at damage claims, so motor damage claims in 2022 and how they compared on average to 2021. And it's eye-watering. You know, I, I think it, it, could, it could be around 20-odd percent increase in the cost of damage claims into 2022 for motor. So that just gives a I think, a flavor of, of what inflation can do. Now, what I'd be really worried about as, as a reserving, actually, is the migration of that kind of inflation into injury claims. So we haven't yet seen that, or at least I, I can't see it reliably in the data. But the fear is that that will eventually make its way, uh, that inflation, whether it's through wages of carers or medical wage inflation, there are mechanisms by which price and wage inflation can get into injury inflation. So that is that is a big uncertainty at the moment. That's an area that I know all reserving actuaries will be monitoring very carefully and be taking a prudent approach, I think, when it comes to reserving. So, you know, huge uncertainties there, very material to um, to reserves. And that's not to mention other, other things like um, the discount rate. So we're still operating on a discount rate that was set by, I think it was Russell HSE, was it 15 maybe, 2015? We're still operating on a discount rate that was set at that time, and a lot has changed in the meantime. I mean, the the, the economy and the macroeconomic environment is radically different now to what it was in the past. We've seen other jurisdictions change their discount rate in the meantime to very different numbers. And indeed, the government, we've seen a, a consultation on the discount rate last year. So we have the potential for a change in discount rate, which overnight would change reserves dramatically. So that's that's still hanging around out there. And, and then we have PPOs, which uh, we, we have the, say this is the Kafka-esque situation, that we have legislation for PPOs, but at the same time we have the courts telling us that a PPO cannot be awarded under the, the, the wording of the, of the legislation. So we have some strange oddities there. So yes, uh, I think fair to say that um, 2022 year-end was, uh, was full of uncertainties for reserving actuaries. If we move on to a different topic, and that's the public image of insurance, I'd just like to understand your thoughts on why the sector has such a bad reputation and what we can do to maybe try to improve it. This is a topic that I do kind of feel a little bit passionate about. As someone who's worked in the industry all my life and who actually believes that the industry is a tremendous force for good, you know, I, I think insurance, if it didn't exist, well, I know if it didn't exist, we would have to invent it. It's crucial to society. And anybody working in insurance, I think, should feel very good about that, not least myself. You know, I like to I like to feel good about the 
the, the thing that I do, you know, I spend most of my time doing, that it would be a good thing. So I do get a little bit dismayed when I see the industry being beaten up. Now, insurance is not perfect. In fact, it's quite imperfect. It's impossible for the insurance industry to to get it right, if you like. You know, we're again, we're, we're driving the car, looking through the rear view mirror, trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. We're always going to get it wrong. So the insurance industry always needs to be ready to, to be criticized and, and, and should be and should be. But I do get a little bit dismayed sometimes when, when it gets, um, when the industry gets um, beaten up and for reasons that are possibly due to understanding. Um, you know, I, I, do, I, I do wonder if, um, <laughs> if the industry might be a little bit misunderstood. And, um, and I think, there, you know, there might be a few reasons for that because it is different. It, it's a funny kind of industry. You know, it's not like normal manufacturing type industries. It's a little bit different. And there's some dynamics at play that people might not fully understand. So one of them, for example, is we, we don't know the price of our product until years down the line. You know, with motor insurance, for example, a huge part of that is injuries. The larger injury claims, we, we might not even know about them until after the policy has expired. Uh, for the largest claims, it could take up to, it could take six, eight years for those claims to really, you know, settle and, and for the, the cost of them to be known. So we're dealing in very long-term cost base in terms of estimation. We, we, we don't know our cost base, but we're pricing the product now. So that means that I think there's a lot of delay built into the system necessarily. You know, when we change the, the, the PIGs, the, the injury guidelines, people hope that that has a, an overnight impact. But it, it kind of can't. You know, we, we have to wait and, and, and see what happens. So that kind of implicit delay in the system, I think, is, is probably poorly understood. That's probably one thing. Another thing is the cyclical nature of the business. You know, as you know, insurance is notoriously cyclical. It takes years for a full cycle to, to, to travel through. So we have these periods of high profitability and we have these periods of low profitability or loss making indeed. And, and those, those, um, those cycles can last 10, 12, 15 years. As an example, when the first, I think it was the first motor NCID report came out, which is tremendous in that it gives insight into what's actually happening in the industry. And I think one of the observations that was made on that NCID was that in, I think it was in 2018, that the industry, motor industry, made a 9%, I think it was a 9% profit. So that observation, I can understand why it, why it was made, but there's some subtleties that, that need to be sort of, uh, that needs to be placed in context, that 9%, not least because of the cycle. So in the very same report, and to be fair, the central bank actually, you know, observed, made this observation in the report itself. If you look through the, all the data that was in that report, so not just 18, but looked at all years combined and, you know, tried to measure better through the cycle, the returns, it's actually more like 3%. So that, that concept of, of a cyclical nature, it's poorly understood, I think, by, by people external to the, to the industry. So... That doesn't help either. You know, there's a complexity there that, that's, that's a bit different. Even the, the 9%, I'm not sure that people realize that, that insurance companies are commercial entities. 
they need to make a return. There is a capital cost to writing insurance. So these insurance companies are putting capital on the line, and they do have to make a return on that capital. And by the way, if they don't make a return, they'll put their capital elsewhere. That is the nature of, of, of commercial markets. And 9%, frankly, you know, is, is, is about, you know, just about good enough if you consider other potential returns on capital that businesses could make. And for Ireland in particular, where there's a very significant dependency on international group companies that frankly can place their capital very easily in different countries, we need to realize that insurance companies need to make a profit. So there's a few dynamics, I think, of the industry that kind of make it difficult, I guess, for the person on the street to appreciate what's going on. Now, that said, there are problems with the insurance industry, not least, uh, just to, to give my own view here, not least the, the cost of delivery, I think. You know, I think um, we probably have work to do as, a, as an industry in terms of the cost of delivery. Again, if you look at the NCID, you know, it's just fantastic to be able to go to a market source of information to make some of these observations. But if you look at the motor NCID, I think the expense ratio is about 26%. So in very simple terms, about 26 cents of every euro goes in expenses. And for commercial type insurances, that would be a little bit higher again. So that actually compares quite well to the rest of Europe. But I have to say, just for me, that seems high. You know, that does seem quite high. The cost of delivery of the insurance uh, service or product just seems quite high to me. And that's even before you take into account the fact that there are other frictional costs that are actually contained within the claims cost. Now, the big one being legals. You know, legal expenses are, are in the claims cost, and they are very significant as well. So the cost of delivery of particularly the injury component of insurance is just seems high, and I think the industry can should and, and, and can do more on that. There, there are underinsured niches, I think, um, you know, some of them very well publicized, uh, whether it's bouncy castles, ice rinks, crashes. Uh, there are underinsured niches. I, I think young male drivers still, um, you know, suffer from really quite thin markets and, uh, you know, quite expensive um, cover. They should pay more. You know, there is evidence to support that. But I think they are operating in quite a thin market. There might be only one or two, you know, players available to, to for, for, for certain risks. So I think that's something that um, companies could do more of. But also, there does seem to be favorable changes in terms of um, the ability of companies to run cases that might be exaggerated or or, or just straight up fraudulent. Um, and those cases would have been harder to run in the past. Um, there may be some changes there. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, but I just sense that, you know, that there, there could be things changing there. But the insurance companies have no real direct influence on that. They have to operate in the environment they're, they're operating in. Um, they will, you know, insurance companies will run cases uh, if, it, if it makes sense to do so. You know, they are not naive when it comes to how claimants and how courts will respond um, in terms of how they defend exaggerated claims. But we are seeing changes there, and I really hope that continues. The, the other area, and you mentioned it there, that is kind of outside of the power of, of insurance companies, and that's competition. So 
I'm, I'm not sure an insurance company would necessarily invite more competition by definition. You know, it's the competition that, that puts the discipline on the commercial market. But I think an increase in, in competition would benefit the country as a society. And it, for me, it's probably the single most potentially beneficial thing that, that we could experience as a society, and that is increased competition in the market. Unfortunately, it's, it's not a big market. It probably cannot support a huge amount of, of companies. And in something like motor, we actually have quite a, quite a selection. Although in certain niches, like I say, that, that selection might be quite limited. But an increase in competition, particularly in liability lines, um, you know, Brexit was disastrous, I think, for, uh, for Ireland in, in that respect, because a lot of capacity was coming from, from the London market. Um, but increasing competition, however that, that happens, is probably one of the biggest single uh, positive influences I think we could have. So, Tom, thank you so much for your time today. There's some really interesting information there and a lot of food for thought for our listeners. So thanks again, and we will see you soon. My pleasure, Emma.